Welcome to the Eugene Halliday Podcast. Every fortnight we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 23, Dialectics. subject matter chosen to be talked about tonight is dialectic. A young man who knows all about dialectic said to me it wasn't enough to know all about it and he'd like to know more. <laughs> the funny thing is it is always possible to know more and we'll see that if anyone thinks it is not possible to know more when you know all there is to know, that person is an idolater. He has come to rest on a formulation of some kind. And in so doing, he has actually, by his identification with a finite formulation, stopped his own further evolution. The reason for that is that the ultimate reality is a power which is infinite and therefore capable of infinite modulations, of infinite creativity so that you are not seeking in the world to find the solution of a problem which is solvable because there is no finitude about that power. Whatever solution you may get is a solution only up to the moment of getting it. The infinite power, which is the substratum of all that is, is capable of redesigning itself every moment and in fact does so, so that when scientists or philosophers come to the final conclusion, say like Newton or Einstein, or in philosophy Hegel, when they come to the final solution, the universe changes its form, changes its mode of activity. So although that was a final solution up to the moment of its formulation, it is not any longer a final solution of the problem. You all know that rats, through being repeatedly poisoned, have learned how to subsist on poison. There is an infinite adaptability. Things that can be killed by other things, if they're killed often enough, learn to adapt to the killing energy and to survive in the middle of it. And that is an example at the grossest possible level of the fact that the universe, being power, is infinitely adjustable. There is no final solution to a problem, like what is God? There is no final solution to the problem of philosophy, what is ultimate substance? Any solution is for now. The word system means saviour for a time. S-Y-S for saviour and T-E-M for time. That S-Y-S root which occurs in the signal save ourselves, S-O-S and in the Greek base meaning saviour and in the Hebrew for horse, Zeus, also the saviour because horse means hierarchical power issue plus tem, the base of time, put together any system, 
no matter what it is, is necessarily applicable only up to the time of its formulation. It saves you from chaotic processes. Only up to the time of its formulation. After that time, it immediately becomes out of date. Now, we're going to talk about dialectic, and in the process, we're going to point out that dialectic, and here I have to make a, a plug for Hanukkah's philosophy class, which uh, a large number of people are not taking advantage of, probably because she's only a little girl anyway. She's not six feet six, and very imposing. She does happen to be fairly knowledgeable in a systemic way, that is, will save you for a time. But in the process of studying historical philosophy, the mind is furnished with evidences that every formulation that has been made historically has been transcended at the very point where it seemed to the propounder of that systemic philosophy to be the last word, whereby everybody can understand total reality. Now we're going to start with the fact given by Plato, actually outlined by Hanukkah in her philosophy class, of a process which Plato describes as coming from Socrates, his master. And this is the process whereby the quotation of Bernard Shaw's of Plato can be comprehended. Shaw liked to quote about when philosophers are kings and kings philosophers, then we can expect some form of intelligent government. Now Plato gives the method whereby any man or any woman, remembering that God is a woman, can actually come to be a philosopher king or a king philosopher. And he outlines this process very clearly. He says, first of all, we have to come out of the cave. Now you all know the analogy of the cave where it is described that man sits as if in a cave with his back to the light which is outside and this light is throwing shadows on a wall in front of the men in the cave and they are looking at these shadows and they are chained so they cannot turn their heads to see what is casting the shadows. So they study the shadows and the behavior of the shadows. The relationships of the shadows. And all they are studying is shadows of realities that they cannot see because they can't turn round. Now this idea of the turn round runs through every major philosophy. When we look in the external world, we tend to think that we are looking into an open situation and we forget that we have a skull here, which is the cave in which we sit. That is to say, our intelligence tends to sit inside the organism and to look out through its eyes and think that it is seeing reality with its eyes. And we know it's a physiological fact that with our eyes we do not see the external world at all. 
we see something quite different. What we see is a projection, just as from the magic lantern, on our retina. At the back of our eyes, we have retinal structures, rods and cones, which are stimulated by energies that come from outside. And when we look with our eyes open, what we are actually looking at is an image, a shadow, on the retina. We tend, because we are teleological, that is purposive beings, to project through the eyes and to confer upon the images on the retina an external existence and reality. That's all the people in this room are on my retina and I am on your retina. You tend to project and think I'm over here and if I didn't know any better I would tend to project and think all you people were out there and not on my retina. Actually you look to me as if you're on my retina. And babies also see other people as on the retina especially when they have some reason to withdraw from them. For instance, parents might be pressurizing a child. The child doesn't like it and will suddenly say, Oh, mummy, you've gone small. What's happened is that the child has withdrawn its projective energies and is looking directly at a very tiny image on the retina, which is reduced to the level of 2D. Think about that, that on the retina the image has length and breadth, but it has no depth. So our belief that people have depth does not derive from our eyes. It derives from moving about and putting our arms around things, embracing things. We build up our three-dimensional sense by this process of grasping with our hands or putting our legs around things. In any case, to get 3D, we must get hold of somehow the things which our eyes give to us as a two-dimensional, not an object, a two-dimensional image, a shadow pattern. A shadow which may be black and white or coloured according to how you adjust the knobs on your TV. Now, what is the process whereby an ordinary man can come to be a philosopher king or a king philosopher, according to Socrates. It is a very simple process. It consists, first of all, of recognizing the necessity for coming out of the cave. And to do that, somehow you must learn to turn around. Something must happen in you to say, I am looking at shadows. I am projecting into an external world. And I must learn to turn around inside myself and instead of looking at that world which I project in which my beloved or my enemy appears to be lurking I must turn around and go inside and look at myself look at my zone of sentient power which is peculiarly my own because I and I alone can go into it in the same way as each individual here present can go into his own being by turning round from the external sense stimulus pattern. And each individual and 
each individual alone can do his own self-looking at. We have to get out of the cave. So what is the first thing to do to convince us that we are in the cave? And the first thing is to recognize the peculiar quality of sense organ information. Now the eye is very obvious and the ear is very obvious and misinforming us. The eye does it because if we ask ourselves a simple thing, say, what is the colour of this carpet? And then we say, well, it's a bit dark, I can't see. What colour is it now? Dark blue? Supposing we flood it with light, does it become a lighter blue? Does it? And if I put an orange carpet on that blue, will the blue stay the same kind of blue, or will it change? Every colour changes according to the situation which provides it with the background, and according to the time of the day. When the sun is up, the sun illuminates it with certain colours, and you all know a bit of elementary optics, you know perfectly well the colour you see is not the colour of the object. If that is a blue carpet and the opposite of blue is orange, then in order to shine its blue light into my eye, it must be absorbing the orange colour. If it is a red carpet, it must absorb green. The colour that comes to us is not the colour of the object, but it's opposite. So what is the real colour of the carpet? It is impossible to say, except that somehow, mysteriously, it must embrace all opposite colours. The real colour of the carpet is the blue that it gives to me and the orange it suppresses. And if you put orange and blue together in that way, you'll get a dark grey approximating to black. And if you whiz it round in separativity, you will get white. What is the colour of the carpet? Is it orange, blue, put together mixed mechanically, black, put together dynamically in the world, white? Unless you put all of these together, which is the dialectical process, you cannot know. In the same way, if we have a window open there, and an aeroplane goes by there, which is quite possible, but we'll hear the aeroplane which is south, coming in through the north window. We can be misled by our ears. In the same way, if you get three bowls of water, and you have a hot bowl and a cold bowl, and a middle bowl that's tepid, and you put your hands into the middle one, and then take them out and put them in the two outer bowls, they will give you false messages. One will feel cooler, the other will feel hotter, according to its relation with this medium temperature. Our sense organs can and do deceive us. And therefore, says Socrates, having decided we've got to get out of the cave, and that's outside the viewpoint of living in a skull, looking out at an imaginary projected world, we have to recognize first the utter unreliability of our sense organs 
not for telling us about elementary things, about whether the light says red or green on the corner where the traffic is, because that is utilitarian and external. But for telling us anything about ultimate truth, the sense organs cannot tell us anything about ultimate truth. So we decide, if we cannot rely on our senses, what can we rely on? And Socrates says, well, move up from the sense organs and start to use your reason. The reason is going to lift you out of the tyranny of sense organ misrepresentation. The sense organ is not misrepresenting the thing that you see, even if it's an illusion. Even if it's a ghost, it's a real illusion. And you adapt to it externally. But it cannot tell you about ultimate reality and it cannot tell you about the chief dynamics of the universe. It cannot tell you about the mysteries of your will. It cannot tell you about the mysteries of the higher intellect and how it precipitates forms. So we have to learn to reason. This is the order. To get out of the cave, first we must recognize the unreliability of the sense organs as means of knowing ultimate reality. Next, we must see that only by becoming reasonable shall we escape. And then we say, well, what is reason? We must take the next step. Reason is ratio. And ratio lands us immediately in the next level of study, arithmetic. That is to say, the application of a measuring unit to the things we see. This is the order that Socrates gives to us. We have to get out of the cave, so we must first learn to distrust our senses, then we must start to look for something trustworthy, and that is the reason, and the reason is that faculty that detects ratios, and that lifts us to the level of studying arithmetic. How do you know to which man you are married, to which woman you are married. Do you know that you have already, although probably non-reflexively, measured your husband? You know whether it's a five-foot husband or a six-foot husband, don't you? You're actually using arithmetic to know where to go home to. Do you know the number of your car? Do you know the colour of it? If you do, you might find your own car. Rather funnily, I had an incident on one occasion when I went into a toy shop and it was a non-parking place. I put my car there, rushed into the shop and rushed out, put the key in the car, and he wouldn't know. So I rushed back in the shop and borrowed a screwdriver from the end of the shop and opened the car and got in and drove away. And then noticed there was no ashtray in the car. It wasn't my car, it was an identical car, except it wasn't the correct car. So I drove it back and patted the lock magically and then got in the other car and drove away. And that's a typical example of the kind of thing that can happen to you if you are rushing along trusting your sense organs. The car was the same colour, British grey, you know. What is it called, racing green? I mean, it depends whether you're drunk or sober at the time. I was sober. How did I do it? It's just devilry, that's what it is. Now, arithmetic. 
that allows us to make very elementary calculations like my wife's pelvis is about so wide and that fellow's wife's pelvis is only this wide and all the time your mind is adding up like this you are moving up the evolutionary scale and then you say right, this is really good I wonder if we can extend this we will go and lift ourselves into a mathematical phase higher than the most elementary arithmetic and we lift ourselves up and we start studying plane geometry that's a marvellous leap a great raising of the soul plane geometry that means if you look at the circle and its properties and the triangle and the square all manner of geometrical forms and we look in those geometrical forms for something that is absolutely invariable who knows any basic level geometry what are the angles inside a triangle adding up to does anybody remember somebody remembers I wish I could anyhow there it is they add up and they always add up and the definition of a circle is a line which translating through space remains always exactly the same distance from a certain point and this line we call the periphery of a circle which is centered on a certain point and the definition of a circle is utterly invariable but that definition does not refer to a gross material approximately circular piece of paper or wood it refers to an idea so when we do plane geometry we have lifted ourselves out of the sense world into another world the world of forms those forms are going to teach us how to be a philosopher king the next thing to do is to study instead of plane geometry three-dimensional geometry solid geometry this will allow us to predict and study the behavior of celestial bodies of planets of atomic particles and so on we've lifted ourselves up from arithmetic through a mathematical development into the study of plane geometrical figures and from plane geometrical figures into solid geometry but here Socrates warns us again the solid three-dimensional object refers to something existent in the gross material world and therefore it could be a trap we could think that we've got somewhere now 3D so he said do not stop there we must move up so far we have developed through refining our sense of sight now we must start refining our sense of hearing so after that solid geometry we will start to study harmonics a great science harmonics what are the relations of the frequencies that constitute sounds why is it that when Pythagoras fastened a string over a piece of wood over another piece of wood and then down and put a weight on the end of that wire or string or gut of a cat or whatever why is it that when we put a heavy weight on it the string goes tighter and the note that it gives forth when you pluck it goes higher there is a relationship between high frequency and tension the same string at low tension gives a low note 
and to high tension gives a high note. And we know today by physical experiments of ultrasonics that we can actually use very, very high frequencies like a surgeon's knife. We can cut things to pieces with sound. And you would not learn that by simply looking with your eye at things. So when we come out to the study of three-dimensional geometry, to the study of harmonics, we are learning something very, very peculiar and related to the fundamental structure and dynamics of the universe. You all know about cloudy figures. Those are figures made by sand. You put sand onto a plain surface like plate glass and you get a violin bow and you bow it on the edge and the sand is shaken by the vibrations and makes a geometrical pattern. And you can change that pattern by damping it down the glass plate with your fingers in different positions or you can bow very lightly or very hard and you will get different geometrical patterns. And that teaches you that somehow the geometry of the universe is a phonic phenomenon. Sound structures the universe. This will be very important when you come to consider why it was said that God created the world by his word. That's another way of saying infinite intelligent power vibrated itself, and that is its word. That is its logos in the fourth gospel. It vibrated itself, and the interrelations of its vibrations have produced all the structures that we see in the world. The mineral, the vegetable, the animal, the man, the superman, the angel, the cosmic intelligence in its first self-precipitation. All the function of an infinite sentient power vibrating. The study of harmonics then carries us out of the visible world into the world where Shema Israel becomes operative. Hear, or listen. Don't just look. You're looking at a two-dimensional image. But when you hear, the image is not two-dimensional. Your whole being vibrates. When you listen to Bach or Mozart or Beethoven, do you hear two-dimensionality or three? Does your body vibrate in a plane or does it vibrate in 3D? Have you ever noticed it? Does it vibrate you physically in your body, through your body? If it doesn't, then go and sit in the brass section of an orchestra during 1812. And you'll feel, and as a matter of fact, a friend of mine was made deaf from playing in an orchestra in the brass section because he was vibrating his eardrums and literally tearing them to pieces. The only virtue about that was that when he got home at night he had extreme difficulty in listening to the wife's complaints. There is no disadvantage that has not got a corresponding advantage if you know how to select it. Now Socrates says, when you've got to the study of harmonics you have only one more step to make and when you've made it then you are a philosopher king. And that is to take the step from this harmonic, phonic, structural analysis of reality up to dialectic. Dialectic is a very marvellous concept because it says 
that the whole phenomenal structure of the universe, all the apparent differences, are held together by a polarization of a non-different power. The idea of monism stepped up to the idea of non-dualism. All the ideas that we have, ideas in the intellect, are in pairs of opposites. High, low, near, far, soft, hard. You cannot think intellectually without thinking in pairs of opposites. The intellect is a special instrument that abstracts from ultimate reality and presents you with pairs of opposites. And when you have a pair of opposites, you have something, the two terms of which are absolutely equally valid. It is just as valid to be near as to be far, to be high as to be low. Poverty is wealth, and wealth is poverty. Lao Tse said it in the practically the same century in China. Buddha was saying it in India. There was a sudden outburst of inspiration in the 6th century BC that affected everybody and made suddenly in all the major civilizations of the world a revelation of dialectic. That is to say the identity of opposites. To define beauty is to define ugliness. To say that you love somebody is to hate them because your love is bondage. To say that you hate somebody is marvelous because it allows you to keep your distance and be an individual. To be an individual is disgustingly dreadful because it destroys your connection with the absolute. And every individual is seeking absolute power. So the study of dialectic is the top step whereby a person, having come out of the cave, becomes a philosopher king or king philosopher. Let's go back a little to the study of European philosophy for a moment and look at the philosophy of Heraclitus of which we have very few fragments. Luckily, the few that we've got are troublesome enough. He was called the obscure philosopher because he said uh, opposites are identical. If you go to Greece for your holidays, and you go to Athens and you see the architecture there, everything is terribly clear, isn't it? Marvelously decisive, beautiful in its ratio, quite determined. The columns are there and the spaces between the columns, and the columns are not the spaces, and the spaces are not the columns. And Aristotle was quite right that between being a column and a non-column, there is no middle. It's all terribly clear. Heraclitus said it isn't clear at all. He said, the universe is made of fire. Now by fire, he meant simply energy. Fire was the symbol of energy, as air was the symbol of intellect, water was the symbol of feeling, and earth was the symbol of growth matter. He said, no man bathes twice in the same river. Everything is flowing. There is no stability. Your marvelous Greek temples will fall down. Can you imagine at the height of Athenian supremacy, the Greek government believing that their monuments would fall down? 
and that some comedian from Britain would take bits of them away and put them in the museum and be proud of them as if he'd made them. Can you imagine what would have happened if you'd have told the government of Greece at that time that their marvellous temples to the goddesses would fall apart? But they have. Heraclitus is right. Now his name means the key to the hierarchy of powers. And the name he gave to this mysterious energy which he symbolized as fire was Logos. He introduces this term Logos. And we pointed out before that word Logos is made of lambda and gamma and a couple of circles, two O's, and an S for the issuance of the relation between what is symbolized by lambda what is symbolized by gamma. Lambda means light, intelligence, and the noumenal world. Gamma means dark, ignorance, the phenomenal world, the gross world that we see. There is a circle representing lambda, L-O, lambda zone, the noumenal world, the world of pure intellection with no grossness in it at all. There is another world, the Go world, the Gamma world. And these two, the Lambda intellectual, pure intellectual, not empirical rationalizing, pure intellect, the low, and grossness, the Go, in their interrelations produce an issuance, and that issuance itself is most strongly apparent in man. Between the noumenal world and the gross world, man lives. And it's his peculiar problem how to relate these two. Because the lambda, the light, the intelligence, and the gross material body in which it is invested are in the human being so bound together that we cannot remove one without the other. If we destroy the physical body, the manifestation of the intelligence that was there resident has vanished and if we destroy the intelligence what we have is a lump of matter with no sense man has this peculiar position of being between lambda gamma between heaven that is lambda light intelligence and earth gross matter man is the middle term between heaven and earth when you're doing flower arrangement in Japanese Zen, you have to learn to do a vertical stem for heaven, a horizontal one for earth, and a diagonal one for man. And you arrange your twigs on the little plant to represent the relation of these three marvelous powers. The heaven power, the earth power, the manpower. Now, dialectic says that heaven and earth, which are opposites, are mysteriously identical. Heaven, that is intelligent power, and earth, that is gross matter, are not in any way different. Our gross physical body is nothing but our self-precipitated intelligence. Our intelligence is nothing at all but the information that our gross physical activities have given us. 
And that's why when they were showing a little uh, last place on earth, Tibetan monastery on the television, they showed a young boy being taught the importance of the mudra. He was taught to go like this, and to do this, and to do this. Mudras, gestures to the hands, and his teacher said, it is no good learning merely intellectually. It's got to get into your body. You must make the appropriate mudra, the gesture, the gross physical application, like a, a young Jewish scholar dabbling away over his books. He is bending his body to stress on the body to get into the body the information. Because if he sat very still and read his book and did not identify with what he read, it would vanish. And it could never become operative. So dialectic is telling us this marvelous thing. If we are able to see heaven, that is intelligence, and intelligence is self-operative power, and gross material physical bodiness as identical, then we have got the condition of the philosopher king, the king philosopher. There is the process. Now this dialectical thing was seen by Heraclitus and about the same period in China by Lao Tse. Lao Tse's little book of the Tao says exactly the same things that Heraclitus says. To define beauty is to define ugliness. And it isn't as if ugliness is not beauty. Or beauty, not ugliness. Very mysterious, the thing that you call beauty is like the hidden orange in that blue carpet, present. So that when you see dialectically on a newsreel that certain primitive peoples have sent a club to the Duke uh, of Edinburgh so he can go and hunt pigs with it. And he very carefully says, they do not think he's a god. They just think he's the most important person in the world. That's the judgment of a people who are not dialectical. They have seen outside themselves a marvelously accomplished fellow who cares about in Concord and of whom they have received a nice photograph which shows he's uh, very handsome and obviously intelligent. And they have not said to themselves, we have, each of us, inside us, an identical Duke of Edinburgh. Each one of those naked little primitives in his bikini is fully equipped with all the intelligence of the absolute sentient power inside him. Only he's been diverted into external situations by the hammering of stimuli from outside, from his physical environment. And therefore when he sees Prince Philip who's manifestly handsome and intelligent, as we all know he is. But when they see him, they're astonished. But the test is quite simple. Unless they had inside them that which can recognize the Godhead in that prince, if they didn't have it inside themselves, how would they know that he was a superior being? They must have inside themselves this very superiority which they project outside themselves. 
it is projected quite simply because the energy which you derive from food tends to leak outward. It carries itself outwards into the physical world. And again, this carrying out of the energy from within yourself, the displaying of your intelligence externally and so on, that is again like being in the cave, the occasion of the necessity for a turnaround. You have to say that whatever that energy in you goes out towards, it goes out looking for something. It goes out seeking. It goes out yearning. It has Sehnsucht. That lovely German word, Sehnsucht, means yearning, but it's made out of two words, to see, Sehen, and to seek, Suchen. So to see and to seek, in one word, where are you seeing it? You are seeing it in your numinal intelligence. Where are you seeking it? If you are not careful, in the external world. Zainzuk says, I know there's something, I can see it. And it's perfect, the perfect relation, the perfect wife, the perfect husband. And then it projects it outside itself and wanders about in the world. It's called the wonder phase then. It wanders in the world looking for this thing which is really inside itself. Charity begins at home. Lao Tzu said, why go far away for what is near at hand? There's an interesting little story about a young man that had a dream and his name was Isaac and he lived in Krakow. Or do you say Krakow? Does anybody know how to pronounce it? Do we care? Well, let's care. He lives in one city and he has a dream. And in this dream, he dreams there is a treasure hidden near a certain bridge in Prague. And he decides this dream is so vivid, it must be true. So he gets up and he travels, he leaves his own city and he comes to Prague and he goes to the bridge and he sees it is guarded by soldiers. How can he get his treasure? The bridge is there. The treasure is undoubtedly there. But the soldiers are never off duty and he becomes there every day hanging about hoping one of the soldiers will go away and he's hanging about for day after day until one day one of the guards takes pity on him and says, what on earth are you hanging about for? It must be something to keep you hanging around here. What on earth do you think you could possibly find here? And young Isaac says, well, I had a very, very strong dream and I dreamed that just under this bridge here there is a treasure. And the soldier burst out laughing. He said, what a funny dream. He said, you know, I had a similar dream. And I dreamed that in Krakow, under the stove of a man named Isaac, there was a hidden treasure. But if I were to go to that city, it's full of Isaacs. How would I know which one to go and dig under? And young Isaac said, thank you very, very much. And he rode back quickly and he got home and he dug 
under his own stone. There was the treasure. The treasure is always under your own stove. And what does it mean, under your stove? That's how the bridge. A bridge connects two different worlds, doesn't it? Two sides of the river, two sides of a chasm, a bridge. But the stove symbolizes the heat in your own being, the zeal of your own being. Do you know that all great men have suffered from the same thing, zeal? Even Jesus had zeal when he flogged the money changers out of the temple. Without zeal, you can't get anywhere of any importance. Your stove is your zeal. In Tibet, it's called Dumo. It's spelled T-U-M-M-O. It's pronounced Dumo because the D is only the letter T substantialized. And it refers to the heat that you develop in your tum. You have down in your tumland a tremendous power, it is called dragon power. And dragon means a being that's able to discriminate and design his own nature. And down in that land of the tum, in the territory of the serpent, the worm that dieth not, is a tremendous heat power. You know it ordinarily if you're civilized only in moments of sexual excitation when you feel the stirring of that power. That power is the power of the absolute working inside your organism. And you feel it most hotly when you are most involved in the love relation. If you've never felt that heat, you don't know what love is, you don't know what Dumo is, you haven't got zeal and you never get anywhere. So young Isaac knows that when he dreamed, he was really dreaming about his own stove, his own heat, under which lay this buried treasure. Every treasure inside the being is nothing but the zeal, the power of that same being that is creatively capable of modeling, structuralizing its own being into an existential monument of self-design which will continuously change and grow and become like a magical castle. You read about them in fairy stories. You go looking for a certain castle you see there, you go up to the castle, you go and you have a meal, you come out, that was very nice, you go away and you come back and it isn't that castle, it's another one. There's always this mysterious faculty of change in the fairy story. The fairy story is really a deep intuition that has been written down to try to fix it by some intelligent person who intends to use it as a mnemonic. So, Lao Tse, Buddha, Heraclitus laid the foundations of the study of this dialectical process which turns philosophers into kings and kings into philosophers if you follow the appropriate developmental stages. If we take a big jump forward into modern times, we come to Hegel, who sees the same thing, the same logos, the same dialectical principle, and produced the perfect system, and rounded it off like many others had. This is the final word. There is no philosophy beyond Hegel. And then on his deathbed, he said, 
Only one man understood me, and he misunderstood me. Now, lots of scholars think he was referring to somebody, wondering who was the one man. The one man was Hegel. <laughs> and, meanwhile, a very obscure little shoemaker, Jakob Burma, had solved that problem in the 17th century, had comprehended all that was meant by the dialectical process. Now, here's the rub. If it is true that all opposites of the intellectual formative power are equally valid, then no one is justified in excluding anything. You can't divide the world into rich and poor, because the poor are rich and the rich are poor. What are the poor rich in? Experiences that the rich know nothing about. What are the rich impoverished in? Lack of experience. They have none of the experiences of how to make do and men with nearly nothing. Poverty. The mark of the fakir in Islam. To recognize no human being exists. That's an absolute basic tenet of Islam. You do not exist. You think you do. And especially if you're European, you think you do. You're taught to exist, but you don't. You see, exist means stand out. And you can't stand out, because you are actually a modality inside an infinite power. How can you stand out? It's something quite different. Instead of being existent, if you want to be what you think you mean by existent, you have to become insistent. You have to stand in yourself. So there are two kinds of people, one the many, the other the few. The many try to exist, to stand out, to be clever, to show off, to demonstrate abilities, somehow, and the few don't. They get on with their internal insistence. Because insistence is true and existence is false. And yet the whole of European philosophy has lauded, has sung the praises of individual existence. And it culminated in the marvelous works of Kierkegaard. Where the individual and existence are stated as an aim. Now he knew perfectly well that by existence he meant insistence. And he also knew that it was terribly dangerous. I'm going to say a very funny thing. It has always been known to the head governments of all major civilizations that existence is false and only insistence is true. We have said it before, we will say it again. We will quote Socrates, if it were not for hewers of wood and drawers of water we would not have time to think about philosophy. There must be somebody hewing wood, drawing water, if there is to be time. Because prior to hewers of wood and drawers of water, that is slaves, every man had to go out daily and find his food. And if he didn't live on the equator, where in those forests you put your hand out when you wake in the morning, and there is your food. You don't need to study agriculture there. Everything is available. In consequently, those peoples 
nearly equatorial belt have never developed. They're still exactly as they were a quarter of a million years ago because the whole environment conspires to make life easy, to provide them with the food they need. So what do they do? When they're not actually eating or sleeping, they are amusing themselves. Their favourite sport is sexual relation, probably because it's the best sport, being one up on swimming, if you remember, because swimming exercises every muscle in your body except one, and the other makes account of the odd member. This total exercise of equatorial peoples kept them where they were. I'm saying a quarter of a million years ago to keep it within the bounds of modern theory. If I were to tell the truth, I would extend it considerably further back. For millions upon millions of years, humanoid types, where there was food available without having to study agriculture, where they could reach out their hand and get it, they never developed. Now if we move away from there, up towards what is called the culture band, which runs about 45 degrees, that is halfway between the pole and the equator, and a little on either side, so it includes North Africa, Egypt, and as far as, say, Germany, parts of Poland and so on, a band called the culture band, where instead of your food being available, you had to go out and find it. And because the food was not terribly plentiful, very often you had to hunt for it. And because the weather was not very nice, you had to protect yourselves with a proper architectural structure. So that agriculture and architecture and violent physical exercise appeared on that culture band to those peoples. And those are the peoples who, because of the challenge of their environment, because of the taxation of their body energies in that special way, they are the people that eventually were able to go and invade all the other territories. They could invade the equatorial belt. They could um, invade the poles. They have built themselves in on the North Pole and on the South Pole. They could never have done that if they'd not been challenged. Now everybody wants an easy life. Who has it easiest? The man that wakes up in the morning, reaches his hand up to get his fruit, on the equatorial belt, which has always been there, and he hears the noise of what? A mechanical device cutting the forest down. We know that forests are devastated all over the world by what we call Caucasian developmental technology. South America is being mown down, Africa is being mown down by technological advance. And that technology grew only within that culture band. So it seemed that having it easy was creating difficulty. And having difficulties was making it easy. The dialectical principle of the identity of opposites is validated the moment you start seriously studying history. Now that imposes a very heavy burden on us as individuals. If we hear about dialectical principle, then we have to say to ourselves, how do I stand in relation to it? For instance, in Islam, 
And remember, the Old Testament is about God. The New Testament is about the Son of God. And Islam is about the Holy Ghost. God the Father published the Old Testament. The Son enlightened the New Testament. And Muhammad was the vehicle for the statement of the Holy Spirit. And the statement there in Islam is this. Don't waste your time saying, who am I? Say, where am I going? You feel the dynamic different? Who am I? What am I? Am I a soul? Am I a spirit? You sit down and do nothing but think about who you are. You will demonstrate who you are. You are a being that wastes its time speculating about who. Now, there is only one who, an absolute who, and that is that infinite sentient power that we call God. Part of his name is who. The other part of his name is he. If you take the tetragrammaton, the four-letter word, the first rude word ever, is the name of God. And that is the word translated as Jehovah. But if you write it in the Hebrew form, it goes, Yod, hey, well, hey. If you then cut it in half, as it was designed to be, and read it anti-Hebraica, remembering that the Hebrews deliberately turned it round to fool people, you then read Hehu, and Hehu is Hebrew for Shehi. And again, the lady is first. The field is there ontologically prior, not temporarily, because this is before time. The field is the basis of those peculiar modalizings that we call formal structures. And as the field means the female, and the formal structure is the male, then the female is ontologically, not temporally, prior to the precipitates of form which we call male. Now imagine this situation. We are required, if we accept the dialectical principle, of the identity of opposites that when we look at anything whatever like looking at the blue carpet and say well it's orange as well and black and white when we look at another human being if it looks female we have to say yes it's a, a woman type man and if we look at a so called male we have to say it's a man type woman and we are to get rid of every criticism of anything whatever that we have ever had. And this is coming out of the cave. This is the great turnaround. This is the great transformation of the self from a state of slavery to the external world, an involuntary slavery that we kick against, towards a new kind of slavery, the slavery of Abdullah. That is to say, of a servant of the field. Because that word means servant of the field. You have to think of yourself in this way. If it is true, the dialectic is true, the pairs of opposites are identical, then the existent, as Lao Tzu says, and the non-existent are the same in all but name. And therefore our finitude is infinite. And infinity, that being that the religious worship is God, is finite in every individual human being. That God is incarnate and man is in God. 
And this throws a tremendous burden because you are not allowed to reject anything. Everything that comes to you, no matter what it is, is to be accepted. And that is what Islam means. Acceptance. In the New Testament it's about Jesus who occurs in the Quran saying, my father works, that's the power of the internet, and I work, that is Jesus and Nazareth, an individual, work, and I elect to work in that same way. And in the same way, Muhammad or Moses, anybody with any sense at all of dialectical significance says, I am a modality of the infinite. And the infinite is modalizing as me. And therefore, I am absolutely responsible for myself. And myself has a capital S. And the self with a little s, the empirical ego, has been imposed on our physical body by external stimuli in a physical environment. Now, how many of us can actually say, I have no enemies that are not friends? I mean it. No friends that are not enemies. Have you ever been let down by somebody? They helped you towards individuation. Have you ever been treated kindly? They did you a disservice. They encouraged your pendency. Everything that you have to say must be said in a pair of opposites. Some years ago, a man came to see me and he was obsessed with the idea that he might be doing wrong instead of right. And that some things were bad and some were good. I asked him for a week, just one week, to do an experiment. Every time he used the word bad, he should say good bad. Every time he used the word good, he should say bad good. And he should think about it. All the things that men pursue in civilization are bad goods, good bads. The tendency through pleasure pain is to equate the good with the pleasant and the bad with the unpleasant. But the pleasant lulls you into a non-developmental state of sounds and the unpleasant wakes you up to evolve. So everything that happens to you has to be affirmed. Everything. There are no exceptions. Can we do it? It throws on us a tremendously heavy strain. Many, many people in the world today think World War Three is inevitable. A large section of the Labour Party gave a big demonstration, didn't they, against Britain as a base for American weapons. They said it was a bad thing. But if there is to be a war, is it a bad thing? You tend to think so, because you might be killed. You might be radiated, you might be blown to pieces, you might be burned, you might be cindered in your very house, or if they get thoroughly clean bombs, you might be cindered without the house falling down. But I know that architects who wish to design new buildings are going to be annoyed about that. They're going to agitate against clean bombs. There are no evil evils. There are no good goods. Now, if there are no good goods or evil evils, and every bad is a good and every good is a bad, what are we worrying about? 
He can only educate us, can't he? He doesn't going to get blown to bits now by something going overhead, telling 81 people going on holiday. He comes through the ceiling and kills them. And the particles of my body go <coughs> and spread out. Isn't that an interesting phenomenon? If you're on centre of the time. I'm quite serious. If you watch a thing like that and you get blown to pieces, you can reassemble yourself. If you're identified with it and start crying, you know, my poor body's falling to pieces. You are then negating your own creativity. Now, Islam means this, total acceptance of whatever happens to you, when and where it happens, especially designed by the infinite sentient power, by divine intelligence, for you, madame. You know, when you go in a, a Jewish gown shop, and you ask to try on that little dress on the slim figure in the window, and you weigh 14 stone, well, the sales lady, who is of the correct persuasion, he gives you another dress with a little talk to explain. She might even give you, if you're very slim, a large dress, stand you in front of the mirror and collapse the back of it and pull it tight. <laughs> and always the same thing, it's you, madame. And believe it. If you believe the dialectical principle that all opposites are identical, fundamentally, then you have to say, I can wear a canary t-shirt without destroying my soul and in spite of severe criticism from old conservatives <laughs> there is no problem about God this is absolutely basic again to the Muslim mind, there is no problem with God. Do you know why there is no problem with God? Because God is infinite. Now all problems are definable. The essence of a problem is that you can define it. And if you can define it, you can sort it out. And if you can sort it out, you can solve it. But God is not finite. And therefore, he's not a problem. Now if he's no problem, what do you do about it? Do you think about it? No, because that's how you solve problems. The one thing you must not do about that infinite sentient power which no one has ever seen nor can ever see because the essence of infinity is its invisibility. You either believe it or you don't. And you do that by act of will. And to do it, you mustn't say, who am I? You must say, where am I going? Now think of the dynamic of the orientation that occurs in your soul if you say, I really prefer to believe that this, my organism, is a precipitate of infinite sentient power internal to which I live and move and have my being but I have no life and being other than this that this infinite is willing to posit me here and now and then to impose on me with millions of other likewise precipitated forms and I have to accept them now my total ancestral inertias of the negative order and all my miseducation by a competitive civilized society the inertias of those will fight this truth this truth says that every human being is a marvelous being because it's exactly between heaven and earth 
between infinite intelligent power and gross inertia. And because it stands between the two, the human being and only the human being, no other being, you've got to stand in the middle of those two. Only the human being can actually solve the problem of existence. Because only he combines this infinite intelligence and this gross body inertia. The human being is a mysterious, a marvelous being. To recognize that and then deliberately say, I like it. I am going to get it. Not who am I, I don't care. I am going to get heaven and earth together. This human being is going to pull down the lambda lift up the gamma. And it says in the Bible, the valleys shall be exalted and the mountains shall be brought low. Bring down your brilliant insights of the intellect into the gross world and lift up your gross world into the zone of your brilliant insights. And then, by the dialectical opposition, the tension between those two, the power that comes in between those poles becomes truly individuated. Not existent, but insistent. You can insist on your viewpoint as a unique, divinely positive being. With absolute validity, with eternal justification. Because the moment you are sincere with yourself, in your own peculiar situation between your heaven and your earth that is between your conceptual insight and your gross physical application when you with full sincerity can say I have gathered together I have brought my heaven down I have lifted my physical body up and I have welded them together in the middle you have no further need of any justification whatever outside the zone of your own being. Now it sounds like hard work. It's simple, because it's simply this. The infinite field of power has precipitated an infinite number of centers of reference, some of which we are. It's as simple as that. If the centers of reference forget that there are such precipitates, they wonder in the world of sense stimuli and get lost and die. And they lose their references. But if they remember daily that they are precipitates of this infinite sentient power, they cannot be lost. And the big fight is against the inertias of bad education and negative ancestral inertias which try to pretend to you that that is not true. But internally, you know it is true. But when you come into the big fight, the one that Muhammad called the large battle, that Tikhar Akbar, that big fight, the fight inside your own being against your own inertias, if you solve that fight, you can solve the whole problem of being. And you will know there is no problem of solving God. Because there is no difference between the highest centre of your intelligence, the lowest centre of your physical incarnation, 
and the infinite divinity that precipitated it. In which case, you become an eternally advancing, ever-developing, ever-self-transcending, divinely self-precipitated being. Creativity and immediacy are the marks of spirit. listening to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes.